Today on the ESG Beat, we will speak with Bruce Freed, the co-founder and president of the Center for Political Accountability. Bruce will be discussing how boards and executives can ensure that corporate political activity is aligned with good governance, including transparency and disclosure. To learn more about best practices for corporate political accountability, we invite you to explore the resources on the Center for Political Accountability's website. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Bruce. It's a pleasure to join you. So this episode will focus on corporate political accountability, which is something that is very top of mind for investors and boards today, um, and your work at the Center for Political Accountability. Before we get started and delve through the details of some of your research and reports, can you please introduce us to the Center for Political Accountability and its work? The Center for Political Accountability was founded 19 years ago in uh, late 2003 to address the uh, the whole issue of how companies engage in election-related spending using corporate or treasury funds. This is very important to understand the distinction between those funds and the political action committee uh, funds, which come, come from company employees. Uh, the, uh, there's been a, a significant amount of money that companies contribute using their, uh, their treasury funds. You're getting into the five figures, but really the six figures and seven figures, and it has a tremendous impact. Uh, much of that money goes to third party groups, uh, groups like the Governors Associations, the State Legislative Campaign Committees, Attorneys General Associations, 501c4s, the Secretive Social Welfare Organizations, trade associations. You have some major trade associations like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, and the uh, Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers uh, Association that are significant political spenders. You also have the super PACs, uh, super PACs that both parties have in the uh, uh, in Congress. Uh, two examples would be the Congressional Leadership Fund, the Senate Leadership Fund. Those are the Republican groups. Democrats have their counterparts. So there's a massive amount of corporate money that has come in. Over the past decade, uh, that money has had a significant impact on shaping, reshaping, and I would say distorting state and national politics and policy. The center has done a great deal of research on that, original research, looking at the sources of money uh, to some of to the 527s. Uh, now, what we've tried to do is, what we have done, is really approached the whole issue of political spending by companies as a matter of risk management. Mm-hmm. This is extremely important because it's been framed as a corporate governance issue, which it is. And you know our approach has been to uh, to to engage companies through the use of shareholder resolutions, to urge them to adopt disclosure and accountability policies. Thank you for introducing us uh, to the work of the Center for Political Accountability. Um, before we get into the details of uh, some of the reports, can you define for us what is corporate political accountability, broadly speaking? Corporate political accountability is robust policies for disclosure of the company's political spending using corporate funds and robust board oversight and the adoption of policies governing 
uh, com the way the company engages in political spending. I'd like to delve into uh, some of the guidance that you provide to boards on how they can achieve corporate political accountability. But before we do that, I want the audience to really understand how much the pressure is mounting and the current state of play. So can you tell us a little bit about the investor and other stakeholder pressure? There is tremendous uh, pressure on the part of investors, but also on the part of employees, consumers, and customers on uh, companies on the way they engage in political spending and the consequences of their spending, what their spending associates them with. When you look at it from the investor standpoint, there has been a steady increase in investor support for the Center for Political Accountability's model resolution calling for companies to disclose and have board oversight of their election-related spending. I'll just give you a few figures on that. Sure. When the Center's resolution was first filed, this is back in the 2004-2005 proxy season, the average vote was 9%. You know, we were getting votes in the 15% range. Uh, but then in 2006, Institutional Shareholder Services, the big proxy uh, advisory service, be moved from opposing our resolution, because they had a blanket policy of opposing social resolutions, to recommending on a case-by-case -case basis. They started recommending for the CPA resolution. In 2006 proxy season, the average vote jumped to 20%. It has been going up steadily since then. 2019, the average vote was 36.4%. 2020, the average vote was 40.9%. Uh, 2021, the average vote was 48.1%. We routinely now get majority votes. This shows you the level of investor interest, concern, and support for company adoption of disclosure and accountability policies. And what do you think is driving this increased focus? And, and we've talked about this before, particularly the recent increase from 2020 to 2021. I mean, this is so top of mind for mainstream investors today. What's driving it? Why now? I think it's the rise of ESG. I also think it's the uh, recognition that political spending really does pose a serious risk to companies. I think it's a recognition that the political spending has posed a very serious risk to our society and our political system. And really since uh, January two, uh, uh, 6, 2021, to our democracy. Um, yeah, and, and so I'm, I was um, waiting to see how companies and investors would respond. And I've been uh, encouraged by the level of uh, focus. I mean, there's a long way to go, as your reports point out. But um, one thing that I, I really like about your work is that you do uh, note the progress that companies have made. So let's turn to that now. Um, what specific governance reforms are companies making? Let me just state at the outset that our whole approach has been to work collaboratively and cooperatively with companies. That's absolutely central. That's why the corporate governance approach has been so important because we've wanted to engage them. The shareholder resolution has been the vehicle for engaging them. You know, we would prefer that a resolution not go to a vote, that we enter into a dialogue and the company would adopt disclosure and accountability policies. There are bottom lines that we have. Those are very important. But we engage companies through the shareholder resolution. Another powerful tool that you have uh, 
in addition to the shareholder proposals, which we've discussed, is the CPA Zinklin Index. Can you tell us a little bit about the origins of that index and what you hope to do? The origins uh, really were uh, came from uh, one of our board members, Bill Lawfer, who is the uh, director of the Zicklin Center for Business Ethics Research at the Wharton School. It was about uh, about 2009, 2010. Bill said to me, "You know what? You're reaching a critical mass in the number of companies adopting disclosure and accountability policies. It's time to start benchmarking them." And so we developed the index. We we developed with with, uh, with Bill and the folks at the Wharton School, but we also brought in corporate governance experts. We brought in folks from companies themselves, investors, and others to be able to to get their input on the uh, on on the indicators that we should be using to measure uh, what companies are doing. We engage companies through the CPA Zicklin Index, and what you'll find in the index is the scores keep going up for companies. As the scores keep going up, let's say in the in the for trendsetter companies, uh, the number of companies that you have as trendsetters, the number of companies in the top quintile, that shows that companies recognize that disclosure and accountability for their political spending is in their self-interest. It protects them. It gives them greater control over their election-related spending. Uh, and I think it also is very important for, uh, for their public image. But then the decision-making, you know, who has the ultimate sign-off on uh, the company's contributions? Board oversight. What type of oversight do you have at the board level? Is there decision-making on whether the company should engage in political spending or does the board just receive a report? What does the board do with committee oversight? I mean, that's very important. How granular does it get? And then adherence. You know, does the company have policies? Does the company have ways to measure and to ensure its adherence with the policies that it, it has in place? So let's zero in on board oversight in particular. What are you seeing there? What Can you give us a sense of the uh, transition over the past three or so years and what you expect to see in the future, specifically with respect to board oversight of political spending? We really were struck in the 2021 index at the increase in the number of companies that have committees of the board overseeing the spending. And the committees would oversee not just the direct spending with corporate funds, but the money going to third party groups and the dark money. That to us was a striking development in the 2021 index. You know, we find that, you know, over half of the S&P 500 have some level of board oversight. Uh, you have, uh, you know, over three-fifths of the S&P 500 that have some level of disclosure. I think one of the things that's very important to note is that a professor at the University of Wisconsin Law School, Rob Yablon, wrote an article in two, Iowa Law Review uh, 2017, Campaign Finance Reform Without Law. And he talked about private ordering. And, you know, I mean, I'm a non-lawyer. Private ordering meant nothing to me before I read that. Rob Jackson had been at Columbia Law School was appointed to the SEC, uh, nominated, you know, named to the SEC, and then when he left, he he went to Columbia, to NYU Law School. But uh, but anyway, you know, Rob had uh, talked with me about private ordering, and the 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 development, you know, recognition of the role of private ordering 
is very important because it means that companies were internalizing this. They were acting on their own and that those companies that had not adopted disclosure and accountability policies were outliers. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with respect to the um, power of private ordering and your work, of course, helps facilitate that private ordering by creating uh, the index and shining a light on you know, who's doing what. Um, you touched upon something very important that, um, that a lot of organizations are not focused on, which is uh, the role of trade associations, and then we'll get to the role of 527 committees. But I have been really um, surprised to find the deviation between a company's own political accountability and uh, a company's in involvement with uh, trade associations. And I won't name names. I'll leave that to you. <laughs> but but can you can you give us a a, a sense of uh, the role of trade associations, and then we'll go to five twenty seven committees. Bruce, I'd like to now turn to something else, which um, you have focused on and that investors are very focused on, which is the disconnect between the political activity of trade associations and also 527 committees and uh, corporate commitments, individual corporate commitments. Can you talk about that? You know, companies have to pay close attention today to ensure alignment of the uh, activities of their trade associations and the outcomes of their contributions with company policies, core values, and positions. Uh, investors are paying much more attention to that. I think it's because of the rise of ESG, but they were doing that beforehand. Uh, consumers and customers and employees. Uh, and so I think it's something that companies still are coming to grips with. Uh, but it is much more salient. You're beginning to see uh, shareholder resolutions now that focus on the issue of alignment. Uh, you know, something we'll get into later, the, the uh, CPA Wharton Zicklin Model Code of Conduct deals with the whole issue of alignment. Um, the fact that companies need to know where their money ends up, whether it's through a trade association or, an, or, or another third party group, what it results in, and how it squares with company policies and positions. I mean, that's extremely important. They no longer can take a lackadaisical attitude toward, toward uh, you know, outcomes that, that they perhaps oppose uh, by saying, well, we belong to a trade association for a variety of reasons. Now, if it's a very significant issue, for instance, climate change would be a major one, uh, that companies really do need to speak out and assert themselves. Um, Thank you for that, Bruce. And um, a similar phenomenon is playing out with respect to 527 committees, as your work points out. Can you shed some light on that? 527 committees are very important. I mean, these would be the Governor's Association, State Legislative Campaign Committees, and Attorneys General Association. In 2010, the Republican State Leadership Committee played a very significant role in the change of control of state legislatures. That has had a tremendous impact long-term on our politics because you had the redistricting of state legislatures, then you had redistricting of congressional seats, and uh, then you had policy and uh, political uh, impacts flowing from that. Uh, 
Now, you know, corporate money, the reason why I raise that is that corporate money played a major role in uh, in the 2010 elections. Uh, the, the Republican State Leadership Committee had a concerted effort to raise corporate money, and they raised a great deal, much more than they had in the past. And that uh, that that would play a major role in the, in the change of control of state legislatures. Now you also have the attorneys general associations. Uh, the AG associations have been, especially the Republican attorneys general associations, has been instrumental in challenging a great deal of the environmental legislation. Uh, they've been active in other areas in bringing lawsuits. Let me just make the point that when I use the example of the Republican State Leadership Committee and Republican Attorneys General Association, I am not speaking in partisan terms. We follow the money. The center's methodology has always been to follow the money and then follow the consequences. And that is what's driven our research. That's driven our, our uh, assessment of risk and the analysis that we do uh, of risk. Uh, but it's something that one has to recognize because there have been significant impacts that I think have created very serious risks for companies over the past decade because of their spending through these third party groups. Uh, companies may not agree in the end with what the results are, but they've enabled them and they're associated with them and when you, with the, in the case of investors and employees and others, they can't escape them. And you've uh, delved into exactly this phenomenon in your report, uh, conflicted consequences, corporate enablers and hollow policies. At a very, yeah. at a very high level, um, can you give us the key takeaways uh, from this research? The key takeaways is that companies are not paying attention to the outcomes and they're not paying attention to the risks that are associated with the outcomes. I mean, the titles speak for themselves. Companies have, at this point, very strong diversity policies, and yet you see corporate political spending that has been electing state legislatures that have been engaging in racial gerrymandering or restricting the right to vote and the restrictions of the right to vote are targeted towards certain groups. Companies have taken strong positions on climate change and yet they've been helping to elect attorneys general who have been filing suit against the California clean car emission standards or against um, greenhouse gas emission policies or, or standards uh, on this. Uh, you know, and it's your companies, for instance, uh, Amazon is an example, very progressive policies in addressing climate change. And yet uh, the company will contribute to uh, to the to help reelect or elect uh, climate change deniers. Uh, now, the media has been paying a great deal of attention to this. So what that does is that also heightens the risk. It's not just investors keeping an eye on this, but the media has been giving it significant coverage. Um, that's absolutely true. And I can tell you that these reports are also, uh, making their way into papers in my classes. Our, our students, our law students, uh, just love your work and your reports. It gives them, it gives them, um, a lot of inspiration, uh, because you also, uh, note progress year after year, uh, which is really, uh, important. Um, so Bruce, speaking of progress, you have a captive audience of corporate executives here. 
What is your advice for those who are just beginning to focus on corporate political activity? Where should they start? I would suggest reading two reports from the center. The Collision Course Report, which came out in 2018, that was the first examination of conflicted political spending and its risks. And then the CPA Wharton Zicklin Model Code of Conduct for Corporate Political Spending. That provides the framework for companies to approach political spending and governing their spending. And it lays out the considerations that the, that the executives really need to include as they develop a political spending policy and as they make political spending decisions and evaluate the risk. Thank you for that. Those are terrific starting points. Um, but sadly, we're at uh, the end of our uh, of our discussion today. Only today, Bruce. So, um, and I always like to end these episodes by giving our guests um, two parting gifts: a magic wand and a crystal ball. So let's start with a magic wand. If you could wave a magic wand and change something or a few things that would advance corporate political accountability. It could be anything, legislative efforts, private ordering. What, what would that be? I think you know companies today taking the next step, going from adopting disclosure and accountability policies to adopting the model code, because that provides the broader framework for approaching political spending. Okay, so one you've used your magic wand for, for one purpose and a very impactful purpose, which is a uh, adoption of the model code by companies. Um, now, on to the crystal ball. Um, you know, we've come a long way. We have a very, very long way to go. Are, are you hopeful? Where do you see companies headed? I see companies heading in the right direction in this sense that we have seen a steady trend in the index of company adoption of disclosure of adoption of and strengthening disclosure and accountability policies. Just take a look at the number of trendsetter companies, companies with scores of 90 or above the top ones. It's gone from 28 in 2015 to 87 in 2021. That's very significant. We also are now having companies that are talking to us about adopting the model code. It's at the beginning, but I think we're going to have a beachhead. And one of the things that we found is that when you have a beachhead, you can then start moving inland. Bruce, thank you so much for sharing your insights. I really like what you see in your crystal ball, and uh, I hope it comes to pass. And uh, thank you for sharing your time with us today. It's been a pleasure spending the time with you.